Welcome back to episode 51 of Warrior's Den. So this one is quite good in the sense that uh, it was a reader of the blog that sent an sent a indication that they liked the series on uh, policing in general. And as it turns out, Mike is a police officer with the New York City Department for six years. And he's been doing Kramaga for about nine years and has been training in martial arts since 2009, which includes MMA, Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and Judo. Uh, with his role as a police officer in a major urban city, he knows the difference between sport and street. Mike knows that Kramaga is more than just technique. It's a philosophy and an attitude, a mindset, and he knows this firsthand by utilizing the mindset at every call for service. Mike is an overall self-defense enthusiast looking to connect, discuss, and learn with other like-minded individuals in various stages of the self-defense journeys. Uh, so that's off of his uh, blog, My Akramaga Mindset. So you can check it out. So he was following our blog and sent me a uh, message on... Um, Instagram saying he'd like to discuss and I said hey let's do a podcast so that's how that works and it's quite good get a bit more insight into New York City policing and some policing in, in general because we discussed there's a lot of misconceptions we didn't go political because he's still an active duty police officer so we want to not get him in trouble uh, so you can follow him on his blog or on Instagram Kramaga Mindset and it's about two hours today so you can enjoy that now this podcast is, of course, brought to you by Urban Tactics University or www.utcamu.com. This is for all the individuals who want to learn the UTCAM way approach. Really, it's just a, an organized curriculum. A lot of the stuff you would have seen elsewhere, but it's a structured plan to develop your skills from the ground up so it's as we teach it at utkm and you can t check it online it's a brand new website so bear with us as it grows we'll have a lot more content out there so be ready but you can see the right now the beginner curriculum is up and novice curriculum is up of course paid to access there is some free content though it's limited at the moment so again check it out at utkmu.com and of course if you're in the metro vancouver area you can come visit our school check us out at www.urbantacticskm.com and of course we're on Instagram at Urban Tactics Kramaga and Twitter, although really it's just a copy of what we paste everywhere else, is Urban Tactics KM and of course Facebook. Just search Urban Tactics Kramaga and you can see all our awesome content. So hope you enjoy this episode with Mike and myself. You're listening to The Warriors Day Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions. Okay, hey, it's been a while. Uh, I'm with Mike. He's an NYPD officer. Uh, goes by Krav Maga Mindset online, and he has been a uh, reader of my blog for a while. And he reached out to me uh, based on this new series about policing in North America given all the things that are going on. So I guess I'll just start, introduce yourself a little bit and uh, your background. Okay, so thank you for having me, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Mike. I've been a police officer with the New York City Police Department for the last 
six years now. Um, I grew up in New York, in Long Island, and now I reside just north of the city in a, a suburb of New York City. Um, in my last six years on the job, I've seen a lot of things changing. I've seen a lot of, of uh, you know, good change and bad change. But especially lately, there's been a lot of media um, coverage around the police department and policing in general. Um, and, you know, it's as, as somebody who has been training in Krav Maga now since 2011, uh, I know that it has personally helped me in my capacity as a police officer, both in situations that do involve physicality and also more importantly de-escalating situations from being physical to not having to utilize any force and it's it's my personal belief that training is a huge component of policing in 2020. Yeah definitely there's certainly questionable decision in the upper echelons in 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 some some police departments some are not not so much. Now uh, where did you train Kramaga? So I started training. So back in 2009, I was attending the University of Albany, which is located in Albany, New York, capital. Um, I started and we had a, an MMA club, a mixed martial arts club in, in the school. And I started there and that's where I started getting a foundation in like jujitsu, judo, Muay Thai, boxing, things of that nature. Um, and then a couple of years later, I got really interested in self-defense components of what we were training in the MMA club. Um, but I just, I wanted something a little more, a little more raw, a little more strictly devoted to self-defense and practicality. Um, so I found there's a Krav Maga school in Albany. Uh, it's called Empire Martial Arts. And that's where I got my my foundation in Krav Maga specifically. So I started training there in about 2011 until 2014, which then I got hired as a police officer in New York City. So I moved back down here, uh, continued training during the academy here and there, just kind of on my own. And then uh, about two years ago, so about 20, yeah, about 2018, I started picking it back up more full time training between two and four times a week at a, another school located in uh, Hartsdale, New York. And since then, I've attained my level three in Krav Maga and was training towards my level four up until yeah. the COVID situation shut everything down. Yep, and especially in I, New York, right? <laughs> oh yeah, it's. I mean, my gym has been shut down. My my crop school has been shut down. You know, I've resorted to lifting large bottles of laundry detergent and you know whatever else I can find around the house to get a decent workout. But yeah, that it's, seems. It's you know, I, I was just what is the, today is the the thirtieth of June when we're recording this, and I was just reading. I don't know if it's New York too, but they were like just going to open up. And then they're like, no, we're closing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're gonna they're getting ready to open up. So they've been doing like a phased reopening, and phase four is supposed yeah. to entail 
all types of extra venues. And then they decided, well, gyms and malls and stuff like that are not going to be included until after that. So yeah. I- I'm hoping sometime in August or maybe even September, but we'll see. Yeah, it's hard to say with you with New York and New Jersey. Like I'm on the other coast in Canada and we've actually been really lucky um, for a variety of factors. We can get into it later, maybe, but I, I just wanted to go back and because um, I'm a bit of a Krav Maga nerd. The, what organization did your uh, facility where you're training fall under? Do you know or is it just like the school itself? Um, so my my first school was originally affiliated through the uh, it's a smaller organization called the United States Krav Maga Association USKMA. Mm-hmm. Um, they're based out of Ohio, I believe, but their director is Mark Slain. Um, very good organization. You know, I've, I have a few of their books. Um, so that was my first original school, and then the school I'm training at now is. Uh, affiliated through a group called Krav Maga International, which is based out of Israel. Yeah. Um, is the head of that one? Do you know? Uh, oh man, the the name is like on the tip of my tongue. It's it's no, uh, no pressure. Just represent you. Yal, Yal. I don't know his last name. It's not it's not the Yal everyone thinks of. It's another. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of some of the smaller. Uh, Israeli-based uh, organizations because there's so many. Yeah. Um, uh, here we go. I've, uh, here is a website. Let's find out, except it's a Canadian one. I don't know. Not a big deal. It gets confused. Whoa. It's just, that's what you call an obnoxious website. <laughs> Playing the sound right away. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's one thing I always found whenever I go to, and it's not often, but whenever I've gone to Krav Maga schools in the States, I've found like, they don't really know that there are other organizations out there or the lineage, right? You know, when I'm teaching my students at the, especially at the higher level, they have, it's required information, like who's the big organizations and um, it, it can get confusing. I've been to schools, believe it or not, that don't even know who uh, Amy Lichtenfeld is when you ask the people and it's like, what is your uh, instructor doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think we think understand the lineage and the, you know, the, the people who were, instrumental in, in creating the discipline that's that's important to students that's important yeah, yeah. to pass that on to the students i've trained at a school as well that was affiliated to krav maga worldwide yeah uh, for a brief period when i was living in long island um so i, I trained there so three different schools in total I've, I've yeah now um this like one of the issues with Kramagam policing is that Kramaga traditionally is a very striking, heavy um, style. Although in, the, in in more modern times, some organizations are adapting uh, differently. So how, like, how does have you ever had the conversation with uh, your superiors about? Are they um, concerned about the type of training you get transferring over into practicality? Because obviously, police are it's very frowned upon to punch people. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, I've had conversations, you know, a lot of people in my precinct or who I've interacted with just day to day, um, they're, they're heavy into the BJJ. And I think, I think if, if there was one art that, that a police officer has to be proficient in, I would, I would say a ground or a grappling style art like BJJ or wrestling is probably going to be the most beneficial 
for about 90% of the entanglements we find ourselves in physically. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time people aren't trying to outright fight us. They're just trying to get away from us and they're just trying to squirm away. And it's your job to be able to physically control them and eventually restrain them into handcuffs so they cannot run away. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel like for the, for that small percentage, when you're really interacting with someone who's like an asocial apex predatory type individual who wants to do you harm that most grappling and most techniques go right out the window. And what we wind up resorting to is what's, instilled within us which is having to strike having to strike hard fast and aggressively especially if there's a weapon involved mm. or if you know there's an imminent danger of, of serious injury or somebody dying potentially um but what i've seen is is a lot of crop organizations now have kind of adapted a lot of jujitsu and wrestling into it like for example my particular school uh, we've been very heavily training right before the COVID. Uh, mm. everything. We've been very heavily training with a lot of grappling, a lot of groundwork, a lot of Greco-Roman wrestling, lots of arm drags, duck unders, you know, things of those natures that are really good at at restraining people. So it's it's very it's very incumbent upon the school itself and the instructor because my instructor has a background in mixed martial arts. He trains fighters who compete in, in MMA bouts. So he's, he's got that as a background, and then that bleeds over into his Krav Maga program, which yeah. is beneficial because sometimes the solution isn't kicking someone in the groin. Sometimes, yeah. you know, there's a little more nuance to it. Yeah, it's actually, you know, well, it's not really surprising, but the amount of people who I've had come in and just be like, I want to like rip people's fucking heads off. And it's like, dude, yeah. that's that's the old mentality of Krav Like, I don't know if you've ever seen videos of them training in Israel from like the 70s and they're just kicking the crap out of each other. And then like oh, nowadays yeah. they're like efficiency of training. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> right, right. It's, I mean, you know, you don't want to raise like students who are going to just go out and try to, rip people's nuts out it's yeah. you know, a little more the misconceptions of grama guys that it's like psycho hardcore and I, I feel like the israelis have while it is it's i feel like they've done a misjustice to themselves not focusing on the like so one may walk in peace aspect of it uh, avoid yeah. fights you know even though that's integral part of it i think the image of krav maga gets that bad rap and that could be potentially, I think, why a lot of politicians and police are like, I don't really want to learn Krav Maga because it might get me in trouble if I were to like rip someone's head off. Yeah. And that's, that's never the goal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, jujitsu certainly, like one thing I've noticed, I mean, I'm not too familiar with the, the curriculum from where you're training, is that you have to be very careful when you're integrating ground stuff into Krav Maga. And just to give an example, like the way I've done it, and I'm still playing with it a bit, is I introduced the ground stuff at a little, like my novice level, because what I was finding is that if I introduce like ground stuff too early to people who are like really fresh to combatives, 
they start pulling guard or something, which I don't teach in Krav Maga, but they start doing it because they don't want to get hit in the face. And, and I want to instill in like beginners, like do not go to the ground as an instinct. But if you have to, right, then we start looking at the grappling, the judo, the wrestling from an app, from a Krav application. Uh, like you mentioned, you did a little judo as a lot of judo guys, like say for an overhand knife attack where we would do a 360 or, or variation, they'll go right to that, that throw right? Uh, like a Samanagi yeah. or something. And I've done it full speed with black belts and uh, they may be able to throw me, but I usually end up stabbing them quite fatally in the process. So I've yeah. found like when you're integrating grappling and jujitsu, it's very, it depends on the instructor if they have the insight to recognize maybe pulling an arm triangle with a knife in their hand is not the best idea or a regular yeah. triangle. And I've seen it. I've seen Krav Maga instructors teaching that, right? The and and, and uh, someone with some more practical experience, you might recognize like mm, maybe this isn't the good move, best move, or anything. Yeah, like, well, especially like as a police officer, being on the ground on my back is one of the last yeah. positions you want to be in. So that's that's a a very temporary position to maybe establish some sort of control before yeah. I can move into a better position. I'm yeah. not looking to pull guard immediately. Yeah, I wouldn't unless I like I was oh crap I'm overwhelmed and then I would do it and switch to a sweep. like I think um, you can use jujitsu but you need to have a wrestler's mentality for policing where you want to stay on top you're trying to get them down um, like I am not a fan of teaching the armbar for the purpose of like policing or or self defense because if you have time for the armbar you probably had time to put them in a more compliant position or run away. And if you like fall back for the armbar and you screw it up, which by the way, if they're on drugs and bigger than you, all they got to do is yank and pull hard and they'll get out of that armbar. Right. And it's just the context of how to make it applicable for the street. Like I know just, I saw someone posted, but I agree with the sentiment. Like just cause you're a black belt does not mean you know how to teach self-defense, you know? Right. You run into that before? Yeah, I mean, I've always, I've always been taught to have the mentality of a black belt, which is yeah. to be humble and to understand that now, once you've achieved your black belt, now the real learning can begin. Yeah, now you can really truly begin to appreciate the art. It's, it's not just about the techniques and the intensity. I mean, that that's all important, but it's, it's having that overall mindset which is basically what uh inspired me to start my blog to start mm. that that tag of problem down mindset because there's so much more to it than just the techniques but everybody gets bogged down in the techniques you know it's oh you know crap my god show me how to take a gun from someone yeah uh, okay but before you do that you have to learn how to strike you have to learn about balance you have to go through some some training first it's not just like there you go. Now you're an expert about gun defense. There's so yeah. much psychological elements that go into it that people don't factor in, like fear, adrenaline, tunnel vision, etc. Yeah, that's actually a huge, huge pet peeve of mine in the Krav Maga world is when they teach gun disarms to beginners and they're like, because that's what everyone wants to learn and that's like the cool Krav Maga. But I'm like... Yeah. Have you ever shot a gun before? Because disarming a gun is going to be a very big problem once you get a hold of it. Or the other one, you know, if it's like a semi-automatic uh, pistol and you grab that slide, 
it can still get one shot off if it's got a chambered round and people don't think about that stuff. It's like, have you ever shot a gun with no hearing protection? It sucks. And if you disarm someone, uh, I only had to do it once or twice. It was not good. Not disarming live fire, but just shooting firearms. Um, right? You disarm someone and that gun goes off. The shock of that loud bang, a lot of people are going to panic, right? Because they don't have enough firearms experience to really be proficient. And I think it's a bit delusional in the Kramaga world to be teaching the people this stuff. Like I know there's been stories of like, oh, I learned a seminar and I success, like defended myself, but that's not the norm. Most people would get like crap kicked out of them, right? Yeah. You know, with muggers that can be quite violent and a lot of people have this idea. It's like, no, they're always peaceful. Just, just give them what they want. And then they punch them in the face, right? Um, so if you're able to, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the uh, like general training that you were given by the police force? Because uh, I think that's the question uh, out there. And just to stipulate, if it wasn't already clear, uh, Mike's views do not represent the NYPD. NYPD, they're his, so don't throw them under the bus. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you know, without delving into too much detail, but uh, it, I'm of the opinion that the NYPD is probably on the cutting edge of training when it comes to law enforcement training, which is due in part to its sheer size. You know, we have over 36,000 sworn uniformed members of service. Um, so to, to train an organization that size is a monumental task all of its own. Mm. Um, I, I really... You know, I think anyone who's in law enforcement who's been to a police academy will agree it was probably not what they were expecting physicality-wise. Like harder uh, or easier? But, I mean, for me personally, I was always avid into going to the gym and, and exercise and staying in shape. So I, I definitely felt it was not as much of a physical challenge as I was mm. expecting. Yeah. But it was it was beneficial in the sense of how they go, how, what their approach to training is. So it starts even before you get on the job, as you're going through the hiring process, you do your test, you do your psychological, you do your medical exam, all of that stuff. And when it comes to the physical fitness test, unlike most other departments in New York and around the country, which usually rely on the Cooper standard, which is basically push-ups, sit-ups, a mile and a half run based on your age and your gender. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's kind of an Cooper? Uh, well, no, I, I don't know which Cooper doesn't. I know it's called the Cooper standard. I don't think it's a good kernel, but um, that's usually just based solely on push-ups, sit-ups, mile and a half run, which are yeah. three things you're probably never going to do in the line of duty. You know, it's funny you say that because that or a variation of that is actually, at least when I was in the Israeli military, it's a standard test they've been doing forever, right? They yeah. call it Maror and it's like, uh, what do you, for the infantry, you have to do 85 sit-ups straight, uh, 75 push-ups straight and a 2K run, which is about 1.6 miles, give or take. And I think yeah. you need to run it in under 845. They still do it on top of all the other training. Yeah, I, mean, it's, I think it's a decent baseline. Uh, while it's not what you would do specifically, like if you're running a t- t- 1.6 mile 2K after someone, is <laughs> like what's got horrible. Yeah, you, you have bigger problems. Then. But I think that 
as a physical standard, that kind of testing should probably be annual, honestly, because I mean, it's less so in Canada, unfortunately for the U Americans. And I don't think it's so much in the NYPD, but if you look around like the country police departments, there's a lot of obese officers out there. And it's like, we we have them too. I mean, we learned the nickname of Smurfs for a reason. (laughs) um, One, one good thing about the New York city is it's called the job standard test or the JST for sure. Mm-hmm. And it, it basically, you can look it up on YouTube. It's it basically, it's an obstacle course, yeah. which comprises of tasks that physical tasks that you very well could find yourself doing in the line of duty. So you have to wear a 40 pound weight vest to simulate your gear. Mm-hmm. You have to hop over a six foot fence. You have to run up and down stairs you have to run around a bunch of cones and there's a machine where you have to push, push pull and go around in a semicircle then pull. So it simulates using resistance and physical yeah. force. Um, you have to drag a dummy, I think 300 feet. Um, and then there's a couple other components to the test, but it's, it's so much more practical compared to it when you're in the academy you do have to do a mile and a half run as well yeah. but in addition to doing this test again in a shorter time frame you have to do it all within about three minutes give or take yeah so it's the, uh because the, canada has similar versions there's like the pull pat and, and something else depending on the police force except that mm-hmm. they don't do it weight with a weighted vest so i actually like the weighted vest because that's going to simulate a bit more like stress I'm not a fan of the push-pull machine. I'm, I think it's horrible on people's knees. And I'm like, why don't you just hire some wrestlers to like double leg people? <laughs> it would be so much better, you know, and they got to sprawl out or something. I don't know. I, yeah, I, definitely I, the technique is important on that. I, yeah. I've actually, when, when I was going through the hiring process, you know, so we weren't hired yet. We were going through the process and I saw a guy pretty much blow his knee out yeah. doing that. Yeah. So I mean, that was eye-opening for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, when it's my turn. I got to really be careful with that and make sure you really square it up correctly. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons I don't like that particular aspect. One, it's bad. Like, it's going to kill people's knees, as you <laughs> said, you saw, right? Um, but also, you, you you don't move like that when you're wrestling with someone. So uh, yeah. I, I really want them to, in both Canada, to replace that aspect with something a bit more... They do it probably because it's just easy. Hey, push the machine. It's like an administration decision. Uh, simulate practical. Well, as Krama guy, you know, there's easier ways to do it. You throw a person in with a padding on, go. Like that can functionally move, not one of those big like uh, suits. Yeah. That, like, the punching bag, right? That sounds more cost efficient too. Yeah. Also, you don't need the machines. Uh, people make a fortune off of those things. Yeah. And the other thing is if you just train people to wrestle, I think, or a variation of it, Right. The one thing I realized when I opened my school, uh, when I started teaching the wrestling, nobody knew how to wrestle. <laughs> and it was really difficult to teach right? Um, when nobody knows. So something like that, you just take like existing uh, officers and bring them in who know how to do it and be like, okay, you got to stop a double you know, and get, get up your feet and go. I think that is a bit more realistic because like that scramble aspect, I think, is so more <laughs> what's going to happen a lot of the time. If you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's maybe 
one to two percent of your job really is going to involve those physical struggles. But that one to two percent being competent and confident in your skills and your abilities could be the difference between hurting someone, hurting yourself, a lawsuit potentially, because uh, what what I've found and in some other podcasts that I follow, um, they always say um, ineffective force always looks like excessive force. Yeah. So if you're just sitting there gronking out on someone while legal per se and within department guidelines and policies per se in that particular situation, the optics of such look terrible. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the cameras never start rolling until the fight's already on. Yeah. So yeah. it's, they don't see what happened 10 seconds before. And then now all that they show on camera is you just losing your mind on someone. And although, again, it, it would be within your rights and within your procedures and within the law, it doesn't look good. Yeah. Sometimes looking good is better than anything else. And, you know, what, what looks better than you being able to just calmly control someone's arms or whatever the case may be and, and get their, their hands restrained as opposed to utilizing more higher levels of force like striking or batons or whatever it is. Now, um, I think one of the things you were mentioned like a little bit ago, um, was like, cause I mentioned that there seems to be a lack of transparency. All right. I found our the RCMP website to have the most extensive detail of what they're doing, even though there's clearly missing stuff out. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're saying, uh, you know, at least for your state legally, you, if you need to, you could hit, but the public perception is that you can't. And do you think that maybe if, uh, they were a little bit more transparent about what you can actually legally do or not do. I mean, public perception aside, because people get silly with that, but it might help clear up things a little bit, right? If we say, yes, we are allowed to hit under the following circumstances and just put it out there and then people won't be as little. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's really weird because, you know, we were trained in the academy. We were trained every type of strike, just like, a typical Krav Maga program would teach. We were taught knee strikes. We were taught punches. We were taught elbows, hammer fists, kicks, etc. Um, and it's all it's all well documented in our use of force guidelines of you know impact strikes of a barehanded nature, punching, kicking, etc. Are all listed as a certain type of use of force by department guidelines and. You know, I feel like people who have that opinion that police officers can't strike someone haven't done the research because if, if all of all of this information is available for public consumption, it's it's within, for example, in New York State, it's it's written in the New York State penal law. Mm. Uh, you just need to do the research and look at it, but it's it's more it's much more easy to criticize than it is to actually put the work in to, to do the research. Um, but, you know, it's, it's of my opinion that striking it, it really, it all depends on the, the nature of the encounter, the, the individual that you are trying to restrain, they're basically going to determine which way the encounter is going to go. So the attacker is always right. Right. <laughs> right. 
So we're we're always in a disadvantage. We're always in a reactive position where I'm going to respond to whatever you do. So if I say you're under arrest, put your hands behind your back, and you do, then that's it. Then there's no there's no fight. There's no tactics. There's no ground and pound. There's nothing. It's it's handcuffs go on. We take you back to the precinct, and you know we process you. And that's that's how ninety eight percent of our arrests go is people understand all right you know i get what you're saying you're just trying to do your job you know this and that fine i'll, I'll go and we'll just get this taken care of um but then there's that that one or two percent that they're going to want to try to escape and like i said earlier that that's going to be more of like a wrestling match it's going to be more of a scramble and an entanglement of limbs and you know you're going to try to just get them cuffed up but then there's the few percentage who are actually going to try and hit you, and then you're not in a you're you're in a fight now. You're not in a wrestling match now. You're in an all-out fight, and if people are striking you, that poses a risk to you and the general public because if I get knocked out, they have a lot of different toys to choose from around my waist that they can now either do harm to me with, harm to another police officer, or harm to a member of the public with. And that's where, you know, we, we can't sit there and try to do joint locks and, and pain compliance on your wrist because you're going to be striking us in the face. We, we can't, we don't have that luxury anymore to try and do it smoothly and, and peacefully because we, we have a right to defend ourselves too. We're, we're people as well, but yeah. that's, that's a rare percentage of situations and that's, almost always determined by subject, not the officer. Yeah. So based on that, would you say that the, you know, violent encounters that go bad are being like misrepresented in the like media as far as like, they make it seem like this is all that happens everywhere. You know? Right. Right. Cause I mean, police officer does his job and goes home. That doesn't make a great headline. That doesn't sell stories. That doesn't get clicks on your website. Uh, you know, bad cops sell. So whether or not you are bad in the sense of corruption, you know, bribery or things of that nature, or bad in the sense of what you did, your actions look questionable. Even if they were lawful, they look questionable. And then now you're subject to the court of public opinion, which, you know, that's that's a, a dog and pony show, if anything. Yeah. Now, because um, you're in New York, I can't remember when it was, the uh, a few years back, the Eric Garner thing. That was in New York, right? Yeah, it was 2014. Sorry. That was right as I was going through the academy, actually. Yeah. Are, you, are you allowed to talk about that situation? Um, I mean, I can, I can talk just from an observational standpoint. I yeah, wasn't you go for it. What are your thoughts? You know, my thoughts are that the the officers who were present looked like they were pretty much persecuted before any of the facts came out. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that case, it, as tragic as it was, there was a lot of internal reforms that took place, um, namely the, the emphasis on the no chokeholds policy, mm-hmm. which by the way has been a policy in New York City since the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So you keep seeing articles now popping up, NYPD bans chokeholds. Chokeholds have been banned since 
before I was born, basically. Yeah. Um, Which is, it's, I just, I don't understand that band. I really, really don't because I think it's Hollywood's fault because while yes, in that particular case, you can die, although it was, I think it was due to his poor health. Um, like you're not going to kill most people putting a chokehold on them. You let go, they wake up. Like, I think it's like two to three minutes before there's actual brain damage. Are you sitting there and holding it? And then you'd have to hold it for like, I don't know, eight to 10 minutes to actually kill them. And, you know, I think the Gracie brother breakdowns were talking about it. And it's, if you know how to do it, right. I don't understand why uh, people keep, I mean, yeah, the training's not there. So I'll put that out there. The average officer isn't trained sufficiently enough. But like I've been doing jujitsu for eight or nine years. And I am at the point where if I, I'm like tap and they're like, they're not tapping, I'll let go because I can tell just from like their reaction on my arm that they are not going to uh, tap. So I just, I ease it up, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, this idea that they're lethal, I mean, Without extenuating circumstances like health, they're usually not going to be lethal. What do you What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned. That. I was just reading, uh, listening to a podcast last night on my way home, uh, the uh, the Invictus LEO podcast, mm. and uh, they're they're big on the BJJ movement within law yeah. enforcement, and they were talking specifically about the rear naked choke or also known as the lateral or the vascular neck restraint. Which is a legal um, loophole for, <laughs> they do it right. in Canada too. Oh, it's yeah. a, a carotid control. It's not a neck end. <laughs> right. It sounds nice, better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they said if, if you were to go to any jujitsu school across the country, I'm sure in Canada as well, if you go to any school and you ask the entire class, who here has ever been choked unconscious you'll probably get almost everyone's hand will go up yeah and that shows you it it's not lethal in the sense that that like you said hollywood makes it out to be where you know people are just going to start dying more people have died at the hands of tasers yeah and baton strikes than they than they have i don't think there's there's always going to be that that one case but the number of cases if you were to look probably going back 40 years in policing of people who have died from a rear naked choke type of technique are going to be very minimal if you can find any. Whereas if you go back just since tasers were invented, uh, you've had lots of deaths at the hands of tasers, which is why they call it less than lethal, but it's still... they changed it over the years. (laughs) So it's... You also have medical doctors who, who can attest to the fact that, you know, carotid pressure here is not going to cause lethality when done correctly and when administered in a capacity that's um, conducive to just putting the person out and then letting go and yeah. not holding it. Yeah, it's like I, I was talking to an officer from one of the municipal police forces locally, and he was talking about they're not allowed to do trachea, anything, air chokes of any kind, and then but they can do carotid control, and there's other things they call it. Um, and then I started telling him one of my instructors, Amit from uh, IKF, because I've trained under tons of people. Like he's got, I don't know if they're still teaching it, but they'll, he did it to me, so I know you can survive. They grab your trachea, and if you're screaming, they just twist. 
right? So with the and it sucks. Like my voice was sore for you know a while, and you panic. It's in sheer terror. But he, when the person who's doing it to you is like, "You can breathe. Can you breathe?" And you're and you're like, "Okay, you can breathe." Right? These are techniques that, with the right training, you can do to people, right? And I feel like the lawyers and politicians are making the decisions with no actual knowledge of the uh, the concepts of how these can work. Yeah, it's totally fair to say we don't want untrained people to do these because yeah. that's a disaster. But that's on the fault, I think, of the people designing the training programs for not really integrating, right? If you... <clears throat> If that's such a concerning technique, I feel like it should be, okay, we need to do a lot of training in, I don't know what you guys, Academy Depot or whatever, right? That way they have the experience, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, no police officer wants to just go out and start choking people out. That's not what we're... There might be a few crazies out there. <laughs> well, I mean, they probably don't have any business being on the job in the first place, but that's a whole separate subject. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's... Why, as as a as a leader who has a police department, why would you not want an option of restraint that is safe for both the subject and the officer when administered correctly, yeah. versus the the potential for more drastic outcomes because you've limited their ability to use such a technique? Yeah. So you know, I'm you know, I'm just a grunt. So whatever they tell me is what I do. So no chokeholds, and no chokeholds it is. But now we have to figure out other methodologies of achieving the goal, which is ultimately handcuffs. Yeah, which is you know, it's so annoying for me, and I'm sure every law enforcement, right? At first, you guys, only tools were like batons. And we, if you go way back and when they yeah. beat the crap out of people and then they gave them uh, guns so they, they, you know, could shoot from a distance and then people complained. So then they added, you know, other things like beanbag guns and tasers and, and all these other options so that you don't have to use lethal force and people are want to take it away now. It's like we finally got to the point where we had enough tools that are non-lethal or less lethal and you don't want us to use them anymore. It's like, well, I don't, that's the aspect of the public and politicians I just don't understand other than lack of knowledge, I suppose. Well, I think, I think that's what it comes down to because, again, I have all these tools on my Batman belt. I don't want to ever have to use any of them. I found that my most useful tool in the last six years has been my mouth. Yeah, I can, if I can talk you into cuffs, if you have what's called the gift of gab, if you're able to just talk to someone, humanize the situation, show some empathy, explain to them, you know, look, I know this sucks, this is a shitty situation, but you know, my hands are tied here. I gotta arrest you. I gotta bring you in, and you just let the courts figure it out, and you know, you go from there. You know, you put this all behind you. You know, nine times out of ten, that's that's going to work for people. You know, they're going to understand, okay, that makes sense. You're just doing your job. Fine. We'll, we'll do it your way. And that, and that's what I want. I ultimately want voluntary clients. I don't mm-hmm. want to fight people. The, the more I train in martial arts and, and self-defense, the less I want to actually use it because violence is ugly. Violence is scary. Violence is fast. People get hurt. People bleed, people, you know, crazy stuff happens. And that, that's, 
I don't want to do that. I want to sign out at the end of the day with, you know, all my parts intact. I don't want to be out there running around fighting people all day long. That's, that's not what anyone wants to do. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's, people, I remember I, I, my cousin before he went into the IDF in Israel and I was there and he was like, oh, fighting is easy. It's, yeah, it's no problem. It's a bunch of wussies. And then, you know, he was in a special force unit. And then later on, he's like, oh, the Krav Maga fighting was the absolute hardest of all my training. <laughs> like I told you, it was quite, uh, quite funny. Um, are, you may or may not know, are you familiar with the, uh, the Robert Jakansky case? It's a Canadian case. Uh, of police excessive force. Yeah, so it happened in my, you know, it's funny, uh, Canadians know all about American news, but uh, Americans never know Canadian. But it did make international news, I think, a few years ago. I forgot when. But basically what happened is this Polish guy was coming into our airport and he didn't really speak English and he was like tired and dehydrated and he was getting agitated because he couldn't find anyone that understood him. And they called in the, I think it was RCMP. And it ended up being four cops on him, knee on neck with like all, like two of them. And they're basically dogpiling him. And then they were also tasing him. And then he died. Right. And that, that's like one of our most famous like cases. And after that, though, they basically they had this whole question of like, should we even let them use tasers? Should we even let them do this? And then I, I was talking to someone the other day and they're saying, well, in the rest of Canada, they can still do like neon neck and the taser use is much more amenable. Now in BC, uh, our province, you, they're like, eh, they really, really, really don't want. I'm like, but you see, because of four idiots who I believe all got fired, I'm not sure mm-hmm. I'd have to look into it they now don't have their tools objectively and their training hasn't really increased to compensate for that fact. So it's not like people think this is just like an American thing. I, I find that like one of them, I don't know about you. It's like, even like America is more confusing because like Canada, we have federal and then we have, uh, you know, provincial or city police, but in the state, in States you have like the state, you have the FBI, all this stuff. Right. And it's just like, people will be from one state and be like, Oh, this is the law over here. And then you'll be like, Oh, and another thing. And you know, you go to Europe, it's completely different. And everyone always has the idea that it's how it is in Hollywood or whatever the media is showing them. You know what I mean? Right. Like here, uh, Canadians drives me nuts. It's like, like, Oh yeah, yeah. Like I'll plead the fifth. You know, we don't have that in Canada. Yeah, there is people no- watch so much American TV it's like, what do we have? Just don't talk and call your lawyer out. That's what we have. There's no like specific like, you know, thing. And people just the misinformation, people don't even know the laws in their own state or their own city and then see something on TV and they're like, well, you know, they shouldn't do that. It's illegal. It's like, well, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you telling me that you legally are, can punch and hit is interesting. Um because I, the average person would be like, no cops can't punch, you know. Right. That's that's very a very leading misconception publicly. Uh, I, I would say probably across all fifty states is yeah. that cops can't hit, but we have a right to defend ourselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Self defense laws are also quite controversial because one place it's different than the other like in canada for example it's very gray and confusing right i I teach the firearms course here to get your firearms license and the 
when people ask, can I use my gun in self-defense in Canada? My answer for the course is no, you cannot. However, if you look at case law in Canada, it's 50% of times people use a gun in self-defense, they'll get off in self-defense and 50% of the time they'll go to jail. And it's literally like a flip of the coin. It depends on the judge, the jury, and the lawyers. And then um, legally, there is precedence for concealed carry in Canada, but there's only one person has it that's not a police officer. And we don't know who it is. We just, someone did a informate, like a request for information. So it's like, there is the actual precedence that yes, you can carry in Canada for self-defense. But if you ask for that, you're never going to get it. They're going to start questioning why you want it. And you might lose your license in the process. But it's like, if I talk to the average officer here, they don't even know that. But the, the course instructors have looked into it and talked to each other and been like, yeah, actually you can but we don't tell people that in the course because it just confuses people, right? But in the States, right, you know, in, I'm in Vancouver, right? So Washington State is right, right below us in Seattle. And they're quite left-wing, uh, democratic state. And when I ask my Canadian friends, I'm like, if I go to Seattle, are there people walking around with guns? They're like, no. I'm like, yeah, it's a concealed carry state. And they, they're like, I never knew, right? Yeah. So, I mean, New York is very... Uh, anti-gun <laughs> much yeah, new york is one of the tougher especially new york city yeah good luck getting a concealed carry permit in new york city yeah uh, ever yeah <laughs> pretty much that's really restricted um but you know it's it's interesting you mentioned firearms training and stuff and that's that's another core component of where i'm saying like the nypd is more of on the, the cutting edge because they they seem to be the, the case study for a lot of different types of training. So in addition to, you know, you have all these calls for police should be trained in de-escalation mm-hmm. and bias-based policing and uh, be able to deal with the mentally ill, mm-hmm. which we, we have all of that. I've been to bias-based police training. I've been to de-escalation training. I'm certified in crisis intervention training, which is to help recognize the signs and symptoms of different types of psychological disorders that people might be suffering from and how to recognize they're in a crisis mode and just kind of take a step back, take a breath and try to approach the situation from that angle instead of from a, a criminal angle. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, the department has recently revamped the way it conducts firearms training. So we, we, like most departments, train twice a year to get your, your uh, qualification with your firearm. But they changed it from the traditional, you're at the 25-yard line, the 15-yard the line, the 7-yard line. You just put rounds on a paper target, and that's it. To They've actually made it in the same vein as the obstacle course, yeah. as a fitness test, where they actually have... Uh, obstacles that represent different types of cover on the range. You have to move around this cover and learn to shoot from more compromised shooting positions from, you know, you're leaning around cover one way or the other, you're crouching down, you're, you're not, you're learning to, to sool down from a friendly to go around. It's, it's a lot more, it's, it's, it's never going to be enough. There will never be enough time in the day for any one police department to train their officers 
to the point that would be proficient for what people demand, for what we should be trained to. But it it's a good baseline. It's a good way to get your mind thinking about these kinds of things to incorporate that into your training outside of work, um, which everyone should be doing. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually happy to hear that because like it drove me nuts. I still do that in Canada. It's the, the, the sports shooting mentality of like get get the perfect, you know, five five shots, one thing. I'm like, but that's not, ta- the tactical shooters have not been making the decision-making and training process. And it's all the sports shooters or people like, this is what you need to do. Like in the IDF, basically we had like most of our like actual training training was like firearms related because that's the most the hardest part of it. I probably shot tens of thousands of rounds in machine guns and sniper and uh, r- rifle. Like I happen to be on multiple platforms, but you just get so many hours in the range that it becomes instinctual. Like with the rifle, I'm instinctual. Pistol, not so much because I didn't really have that training. But, you know, you'd start with, okay, yeah, we're going to just make sure you can get it on paper first. And then we want to see your grouping. And then they'd stress test us. You know, you need to get this many shots off and this many time at the different ranges all at once, multiple targets. Sometimes they'd have you run 100 meters, run back with gear on, then you have to take the shot. Right. And then once you get through basic of doing that repetitive stuff, then you start, we started really looking at like the field things where you'd get 300 guys sometimes on an open field, live fire, running down. Right. Obviously, that end part is specific to, uh, to um, the military. Like open field combat would not be that common for policing, but there should be like live fire or simulated at least with like simunition, like CQB training for everyone. Mm-hmm once in a while. Cause like in a place like New York with all the buildings, there is a good chance it's going to be in a building. And if it's on the street also, guess what? There's a ton of people in New York. So if you can't shoot under duress, you might hit someone, right? I never understood why it was acceptable just to have the, the, the standard, like stand on the line, shoot and that's it. Right. Close one eye. That's, that's a training scar that I can't stand. Yeah. Close one eye, you know, one eyed Willie over here. Um, since they've incorporated that new course, I've been through it a few times now. Uh, you know, you can't shoot with one eye, it's both eyes open and you're just straight point shooting yeah. using your body's natural point of aim. They took that from the Israelis. <laughs> sure they did because who better, you know, they, they're on the cutting edge of, of anything tactics yeah. wise. But I don't know, um. If it's true, and you know, I was told by one of my other instructors near uh, a while back that the average accuracy for North American, including Canada, um, was like 20%, 25% when shots are fired live in the field, and Israel was like 80%. And it's like, hmm, you think something's going on there? <laughs> I guess the numbers don't lie. <laughs> yeah, and it's like one of those stats that you can't really manipulate. It's like, how many shots did you fire? Uh, five. How many landed? Four. How many shots do you fire? Five. How many landed? One. And then it's like, oh, okay. And you can tell because it's in the body or it's not in the body. And and I think a lot of that, you know, I've been really, lately, I've been really just consumed on the psychological implications of violence and stressful encounters. And that's always been an aspect to me that most Krav Maga training lacks and most, uh, police department training lacks because just talking to other cops from other departments or whatever, you know, you don't, you don't really get taught 
what's going to happen to your body when you are suddenly thrusted into a violent dynamic encounter when just two minutes earlier you were like sipping on your coffee, eating a bagel, and now all of a sudden you're in a gunfight for your life. And that sudden shock and awe that's going to hit you like a truck, yeah. you've got to be ready for that before the fight because if you aren't, you're, you're, you're not going to suddenly just rise to the occasion. You're going to fall to your lowest level of training. And if, yeah. that, if that level is way below par, that's what your performance is going to be. And that's when you start seeing all, all of those issues arise. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a valid point. It's a, it's a very hard thing to simulate because say if you're in the dojo or the you know, training academy, you have deep down the expectation of what's going to happen and you know, okay, today we're doing this. And so simulating that fear is, is very difficult outside of like I could do it if I had like okay guys we're doing like a week-long summer camp and I'm not telling them half of what we're doing right and, that, and that's really the only way you could train that and that and that's something I tell people all the time it's like have you ever been in a life or death situation a lot of people haven't it's like do you know how you will react under that situation and the ones who have not been and if they give me an answer I'm like you're lying because you don't know yeah. And I know that from the army because we had one week, it was particularly difficult. We didn't have food for three days. Uh, They did it on purpose, those fucks. Uh, (laughs) um, And all of a sudden you start to see who can really handle stress. I saw these guys who were like the, the star, you know, future commander guys. They were just losing their shit after three, like, I need food, like, you don't understand. And like their skill set to function as the leaders that they had been picked out to be failed. And then the guys who were like me were like, eh, they're just like, whatever. Like, I remember my squad, we like totally forgot. It was like completely accidental. We found a can of tuna in the bottom of our bag because it's just so much shit. It got hidden under. And, uh, they're like, oh, we should share. I'm like, don't you dare. Not because I don't want to share, but because I could see the hyenas. Like if yeah. we were like, hey guys, we found some tuna. And there's like 50 guys there. And there was like five of us. I'm like, they're going to maul us. And then they're going to attack us and be like, you were holding out on us. Like yeah. what the hell? So we had to like quietly go to the side and like eat it quietly because you can see under duress. Like, um, are you familiar, uh, familiar with the prison Stanford uh, yeah. experiment at all. Yeah. Very famous. You know, they, there was some controversy saying how it was badly done, blah, 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 blah. Cause a lot of people in the psychology field really hate that guy, uh, Zimmerman, I think, Zimbardo. but I've, yeah, Zimbardo. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, but I've seen it redone in other countries where they don't have the ethical restrictions and they got the same damn results. So mm-hmm. it's like, mm, under duress, people react to all sorts of factors, their behavior comes out, right? The group mob mentality, the role playing of I'm a cop, you're not, that all starts to come out under duress. And I would say that, that at least for like, maybe police need a hell week, like the, uh, like the Navy SEALs have just to really see, can they hold out under duress? Cause, um, like how much, uh, by the, on that note, what, what kind of mental health training or, stuff do they give out for you guys in New York? Like as far as for all the like before and after like preparing mentally for a situation that goes sideways or after like 
maybe someone has PTSD or is handling a situation? Like, do they do anything for you guys? Or Yeah, I mean, the, the NYPD is actually very, very much on top of the <laughs> psychological health of its officers now in 2020 than probably ever in the organization's existence. There's multiple different units that exist both within the job and outside of the job that you can seek help for. We have a chaplain's unit where if you if you're more seeking like a religious angle to to speak with someone, we have priests, we have um, rabbis, we have in New York, yeah, you would have. <laughs> yeah, we have every every everything for everyone basically and there's there you know the job openly encourages you if you're feeling any type of stress whether it's something you saw on a call or it's personal stress in your life money financial uh relationship stress they they encourage you to reach out and speak with someone because they they don't want it to get to the point where you're not efficient enough to go out and serve the public uh, so they make that very clear to you from the beginning. You know, they have while you're in the academy, representatives from all of these different groups come and talk to the new the new recruits and explain to them what your options are as far as seeking mental help. Mm. So it's like, it's more accepted than like, is there still like that old boys, like, no, don't, don't do that. Like amongst like the older guys or is everyone like embracing that? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, policing the, it's, it's a young man's game nowadays. Yeah. So, the, or young woman's game, I should say. But, um, you know, it's all about, it, it's all about the, the, health of the officer now so they encourage you to do that whereas in years past it would be oh no i'm not saying anything i'm gonna get jammed up they're gonna take my gun they're gonna take my shield they're gonna psych me off the job they're gonna do this and that and you know it doesn't have to come to that anymore if if you're just dealing with some extra stress that is just kind of weighing on you while you're at work or because of work you can you can just seek an outlet and and you know they encourage you to do that even if it's not affiliated with the job if you just want to seek your own counseling whatever like they they just encourage you to basically be the best version of yourself when you're coming into work mm-hmm. so that way you can be the best version of, of yourself to the public that you're responding because i know like a lot of um because I, I actually have a associates in psychology, so I am familiar with a lot of this stuff. And I found like, you know, me being, I would guess you could say a more like macho male in university nowadays, it's like it does not fit in because they're very, very left wing. And I, like, luckily I understood this stuff, but the way they approach like mindfulness and and mental health often is from a, a, a an angle that the typical macho man or like man's man is not going to be okay with like the hippie-ish approach like oh it's okay you know like that like so it's it can be difficult to sell it to a lot of people who are more into like you know wrestling or this or that um spinning it from that and it's and like i'm hoping at least for the nypd and everyone that they get people who are a little bit more center line <laughs> trying to yeah. teach teach like if they bring out the gong and they're like okay and now breathe it's like guys this is not <laughs> not what we're signing up for um 
it's a lot. I mean, it is a developing field too, but there's a lot of uh, wishy-washy stuff out there. But it's it's certainly I, like I've been finding for myself. Like people are like, "Oh, you have a lot of confidence and uh, other stuff," and I'm like, you know, I'm actually starting to realize I actually think I have a lot of anxiety, <laughs> and I'm like learning to deal with it. And it it can be a very difficult thing for you know an adult male to realize and that how to deal with it. Uh, yeah, I sure. think if I didn't have my background knowledge and I'm constantly looking into this stuff, it would be very difficult. Now add that on like a job stress of like policing. It, it, I, like I, I haven't been in, you know, I wasn't, haven't been in the military for a long time, but it's, it's a very hard time to really like be on, be, take the time you need to decompress and like analyze it. Cause if you're under constant stress, like I found, uh, I have a friend who does this PTSD workshop up in the woods. And I found for me to really decompress, I need three days minimum, no phones, no computers. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're on the job and you're stressed and it's hard, right. It can actually be very difficult internally to implement Right, and then you go home to you know, hopefully not too complicated family situations, and it, it can be it can be difficult. Have you ex- maybe experienced or seen any of that where they are giving the training, but it's still it's still hard? Yeah, I mean, it's there's there's just so much to unpack when you're talking about psychological implications that police work has on people because in addition to worrying about the public's perception of you, you have to worry about your safety. You have to worry about being within protocol and procedure with everything you do. Um, You know, it can, it can easily be taxing on people. And then I think a lot of people, you know, for them, the job becomes their life. Yeah. And they don't know how to differentiate between being a cop and being yourself. And it gets tangled up. And then they find themselves in this, this pattern of constant, just cop, 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 cop. I'm, I'm a cop. I always do cop things. I hang out with other cops after work. I go to cop functions. I wear cop t-shirts, yeah. you know, things like that. And, and they never disassociate themselves with the job but at the end of the day you know as much as i love what i do it it is a job and there are other jobs out there that if push came to shove you can you can go to like being a cop is not my sole identity it is when i'm at work and i'm wearing the uniform i do what i do i serve proudly and to the best of my abilities and, you know, with a genuine desire to help. But at the end of the day, when I take my uniform off, I'm just me. I, yeah. I enjoy martial arts training. I enjoy hiking. I enjoy going on vacation. I enjoy other things that have nothing to do with being a police officer. And that, I found, helps keep me grounded when I am at work. So what you're saying is cops are humans too. <laughs> that's, that's the ultimate takeaway. We are, believe it or not, humans. We're not pre-programmed robots designed to just enforce the law. We, we have feelings. We have emotions. Yeah, I mean, like, guys. I don't know how much you can talk about, but like I'm watching these, some of these videos online and when I see like a white woman screaming at a black police officer, calling him racist and he's a sellout and all, I'm like, that doesn't make 
like people have lost, like they're so far off their rockers now. Like that's like, this guy's a black officer. He probably did it so that he could be a black officer and help police the black community so that there isn't that perceived racism thing, which it does happen. Uh, And yet here's a white woman screaming at him saying he's racist. (laughs) And like, it, it just boggles my mind. Like this is so off the rocker, you know? Yeah, things things are things are wonky nowadays. I don't know how else to put it. Twenty twenty has been a hell of a messed year. up year. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's just so much going on. But it, you know, I can I can say from an insider perspective that the the perception that we're out here stopping people based on the color of their skin solely or trying to deliberately harass people. Nobody wants to do that. No, no cops are out there specifically stopping someone only because of the color of their skin. You know, for, for us, the only time your skin color matters is when someone gives a description of you as a potential subject of a crime in addition to other descriptive factors. So I'm looking for a robbery suspect and they give the description of a male black wearing a red t-shirt and, and black jeans. I'm not going to stop any white people because that doesn't fit who I'm looking for in regards to this crime. Yeah. But on top of that, if you stop someone who has no bearing of that description whatsoever and they're nowhere near the crime scene, then that also could lead to issues down the line legally because yeah. you know their defense attorney is going to tear that up. Yeah. So you, you try to do everything within the scope of legal precedent and, and case law. And yeah, that, I was um, listening to Rudy Giuliani on, I think, the Rubin Report. You, do you listen to that one at all? And I haven't. Yeah, Dave Rubin. I think he's like he's one of these uh, political comedian guys. He's like a centerline guy. He's a gay married Jew from California who used to be like super left. You know how a lot of gays are very super left, and now he's gone. He's friends with like Jordan Peterson and and all those writer right of center kind of guys. Anyways, he's interviewing Rudy Giuliani, and like I didn't know that Rudy Giuliani was heavily responsible when he was, before he was mayor for like going after the crime families. And then I know when he was mayor, he reduced crime. He had like the controversial stop and frisk law, which I don't think you guys have anymore. What do you, what do you think of like that in the sense that obviously you weren't in the force back then, but I, like I often like, and I, I'm too young really to remember, but I know that when New York used to be a extremely dangerous place, you know, like Alphabet City used to be very bad. Now it's trendy and cool and it's got great food, by the way. But, you know, 30 years ago, I would probably not go there, right? right. How do you think those rules that people say are racist, like how does that fit in even if it stopped the crime, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, crime definitely was driven down as a result of stop and frisk in the late 80s, early 90s, and even to some extent, the early 2000s. Mm. Um, but at the extent of, of community relationships getting torn apart. Yeah. So stop and frisk was initially utilized as a crime reduction tool, but it focused so hard on reducing crime that it didn't account for 
all the countless numbers of people who are getting roped into stop and frisk um, as a result. And that, that diminished community relationships. Yeah. But now what, a, another common misconception is the NYPD doesn't do stop and frisk. Stop and frisk was never a, a New York City NYPD thing. It's, it's case law. It's Terry v. Ohio. Stop and frisk hasn't gone anywhere. It's still a tool that police officers use throughout the USA every day. Uh, it's just in New York City now as a result of the past. Now it's heavily monitored and documented. And every time you do stop someone, you have to document it accordingly, which I have no problem with because now officers are being trained very particularly in the, the intricate um, legal precedents surrounding stop and frisk, mm. you know, different levels of a stop, reasonable suspicion versus probable cause versus uh, uh, like a, a general request for information. Um, so we, we have to learn to differentiate those based on witness information, descriptions given, proximity to the crime scene, uh, everything like that. So you really have to, in addition to your, your knowledge of proper tactics and safety, you have to have a really in-depth, grounded understanding of case law that, that you can apply in the street. Yeah. Because otherwise you open yourself up to a potential uh, lawsuit. Yeah. So it's really important to be on top of all aspects of that in the context of a dynamic situation. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, and I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here. You said, you know, no cop is racist. And I, I often operate on the, uh, the bell curve model, right? You know, you have five, five, and then everything is that mm-hmm. I'm going to imagine that 80 to 90% of police genuinely are not racist. But to say definitively that there are not racists out there, closets or otherwise, I think is uh, something maybe that, you know, police officers maybe need to be a bit objective. Obviously, it's like, I, I didn't see it, so it doesn't exist. But I, there's just no way there aren't, you know what I mean? Now, the stop and frisk, as you said, right, it was um, creating... Um, what's it called? Uh, you said uh, like division in the thing, right? In the, in society. Right. And, and this is the part where people are going to get mad at, even though it's just facts, right? The amount of police killings in the U S of white people is double than of black people. If not a little more, it, it changes year to year. And, um, the question the people often ask is like, well, per capita, you know, more black people are ex- I- 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 incarcerated or et cetera, picked on. So I, I would suspect that with a stop and frisk thing, those percentage of, you know, small percentage of actual racists might use that to, to do whatever they want to do. Or is it more, I'm just thinking, right, that it's the perception that it's racist because unfortunately for a variety of complicated factors in America, it's not the black communities have a tendency to have higher crime areas, right? So is it, is it, is it that those things or what are your thoughts that it gives the, you know, the opportunity for the closet racist to come out or is it just a perceptional thing? 
complicated, I know. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. How much more time do we have? That's well, that's, that's all if you want. For sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, I think I think you're right to definitively say that there is no such thing as racism within the police department or within the criminal justice uh, organization as a whole would be to be looking at it through rose-colored glasses. Of course, there are issues still surrounding race. Of course, there are still issues surrounding racism and systemic injustices built into our criminal justice uh, field as a whole. Yeah. That's not to say that changes aren't being made, but it's it's like turning a steamship in a canal. It's a very slow process, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't have all the, the numbers offhand as far as racial disparities and police-involved shootings. But what I can say is from personal experience and the experience of other officers I've worked with of all denominations, you know, what we do is is never based solely on race. Yeah. It's, it's based on actions and allegations. Yeah. So it's... If if I am stopping you, it's it's for a reason. It's yeah. not only because you're a black guy. Because I, I work in New York City. There's there's um, you know it's a melting pot. There's yeah. every race, nationality, and creed you can think of. We have it here. Yeah. So it's you you just can't you you cannot be an outward racist. Maybe if you are closeted then, you know, you found your way onto the job. It's, it's possible. Um, and I'm sure that there are cases of it, but it's becoming less and less, especially with newer officers getting on because, you know, they're, they're more willing to play by the new rules than the more veteran officers might be. Yeah. So we're, we're more willing to, to implement those changes and abide by them. Yeah. Now, uh, cause I'm Jewish, obviously. Um, for me, it's, I, I get annoyed and a lot of Jews will get super pissed at me for this, but I, I get very frustrated that the conversation is always on, you know, discrimination against black people. But as far as I'm aware to this day, the number one hate crime against any group is still against Jewish people in New York too. Cause a little while ago in Brooklyn, there was a lot of people running around beating up the Jews again. And it's, you know, the government, uh, I won't get into the politics of what I think yeah. of yours but, or mayor, but they basically were ignoring it to the point where these independent groups had to come and protect the Jewish community walking around Brooklyn because people were beating them up and nobody was doing anything. Right. So, um, do you see any, like anything anti-Semitic stuff going on? Cause it's definitely there for sure. You know? Well, I used to actually work in Brooklyn, so I was very heavily involved with the Jewish population in my yeah. precinct. And, um, they, they've actually developed their own neighborhood watch. It's called Shamrim. Yeah. And, they wear uniforms that look similar to ours. They have their own cars that have markups that look almost like an NYPD vehicle. Mm. Uh, they, they basically, it's it's basically a, a neighborhood watch for that community. Are they and, armed or are they not? Um, they're, they're not armed. Mm. And at least they're not supposed to be. <laughs> they're, not, they're not sworn police or peace officers, but they 
you know, they, they take so much pride in their community that they want to do their part to keep yeah. it safe yeah. uh, above and beyond what the police department's able to offer. So a lot of times we find ourselves working in conjunction with them to help solve issues in the community. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that, that community interaction is crucial because, um, well, what is, what is the, the phrase? The, the police are the community and the community are the police. Yeah. Like it's one of the, one of the foundation principles of policing. So we, we from both ends need to understand that that mutual cooperation is the only way to achieve safer streets and safer neighborhoods. Um, yeah. See, I find that like, I had no idea that was a thing. Like I, when I'm in New York, which is not that often, I'm usually just in Manhattan. So that's, that's like that kind of community policing, I think is, is actually something I, again, being Jewish, I'm like, you know, why, despite all the discrimination and hate against Jews, it's still going on. There's a reason Jews are leaving basically every country in the world and going to Israel and still Canada and America, but slowly everyone's going to Israel because for whatever reason, everyone hates us. And and we as a group of people seem to have not let that bother us. We're always getting educated, always taking care of ourselves, always driving forward. And, I, you know, hearing that there's that community policing, I'm like, that's kind of what I feel like, you know, the black community in America should do is that, hey, if you don't really like the you know, the police presence and why not create your own community policing in the similar fashion within the confines of the law, of course. Because I find like if people do it from the inside out, it's going to be a lot better, you know, because if it's about community, then the community needs to actually be involved, you know? Yeah, and I think I think what a lot of people don't understand is what I'm seeing on the day-to-day, I, I think... I could safely say that I have more people tell me, thank you for your service, be safe today, thank you for being here. I have more people doing that than flipping me off or saying, fuck you or whatever, you know, calling me a racist, whatever. That That's the loud minority of yeah. people that are actually harboring these feelings of hate towards us. The, the vast silent majority of people who live in New York City, who live in the five boroughs, are just trying to go about their day-to-day life unabated. They're just, they're trying to work, raise a family, you know, and, and just enjoy their lives without having to worry about this constant threat of someone attacking them or robbing them or, or whatever it is. Um, so it's, but that's not reported. It, yeah. it's, you see that in the news. So you think, oh, New York City cops are under attack left and right. When really most people, and I'm talking people of all races and all creeds, they'll come in. We've had pastors from local churches come into our roll calls and, mm-hmm. and uh, hold a quick prayer with us and bless us to stay safe. Um, you know, th- these are people who don't see race, they see action, they see yeah. you wearing that blue uniform representing the line of order and, and safety in their community. And they appreciate us being there for sure. Yeah, um, it's uh, interesting you say the loud minority. Cause like, I think that's, 
it's a, a small group of people on both sides of whatever you want to put the sides on being loud and obnoxious that are driving this conversation because the media likes it because it gets them clicks and and uh, like Twitter and Facebook, they're not stupid. You know, Google, Twitter, Facebook, they have the numbers. Like I don't have them in front of me, but I've seen that it's literally like a few percentage of like Twitter users that put out like 80 or 90% of the content. And they are the loud, obnoxious one driving the conversations publicly. I don't know why Twitter is the platform of choice for this shit, but whatever. <laughs> um, and the politicians and the people in leadership are getting sucked into believing that that's what the actual group of people say like in Canada I don't know this whole our, our current prime minister won't get into it but he's trying to ban guns and they keep saying that their dad you know majority of Canadians want guns banned and it's like where are you getting your data from because when you actually go around and ask people you know do you think people should have guns? And, and sometimes they say no. And then you explain what the laws are here. And like, oh, that's not so bad. I'm fine with that. Right. Mm -hmm. Or you'll find out that these studies are actually cherry picking anti-gun people and they get rid of the pro-gun people. And it's like, the, the, if it seems like that everyone is uh, saying one thing, even though it's not actually everyone, it's just allowed everyone it creates a chaos that you can't actually find out what the, what people believe. You know what I mean? Do you find that's the case, you know, from a decision-making process in, in, in New York that they're listening potentially to the, the mob that isn't actually the majority? Um, I mean, you know, again, without, without yeah. the political viewpoint, it's, you know, if you look, if you look into the recent legislation that was passed, which, bans uh, use of chokeholds by police statewide in New York, and then furthermore prohibits uh, sitting, standing, or, or placing a knee on anyone's body in a way that would compress their diaphragm or possibly restrict breathing or airflow. Uh, that was basically passed overnight without any consideration to any law enforcement agencies because as someone who is trained in martial arts, you understand more than anyone that if you're trying to restrain someone on the ground and you're trying to keep them from moving around, uh, you know, a well-placed knee on the back of the, the lat, which is a large muscle group, can be beneficial to being able to safely restrain that person so they're not flailing around, causing more harm to you or someone else. And then to just basically overnight take that away that could in turn jeopardize the safety of officers suspects and public because yeah. now what is our option and and we haven't been given an alternative but it was it was pretty much unanimously passed into law by the city council mm. and by the state uh, overnight without any real directive being given and just from a purely martial artist viewpoint what's the better alternative then it's you know when you think about jujitsu and hand-to-hand -hand combat how do you safely do that i'm not saying again that we want to uh hurt people we want to step on people's throats that's by no means what i'm saying but th there's there's a safe way to restrain someone an effective way to restrain someone and then there's unsafe and ineffective that can actually cause more issues 
Yeah, like I, I'm pretty sure you saw, I posted it like two weeks ago, I did a video on the knee on the neck thing. Mm-hmm. You see that? Yeah, so Jeff is the guy, like, like objectively, the guy is a monster. Like he, he trains six days a week. He's been doing martial arts, you know, almost as long as me. And, you know, if he really wants to resist, it's going to be, it's going to be a fight. But you could see in the video when I got his head to turn like fully sideways, you get your, 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 uh, your chin pointed to one shoulder and then the knee on the neck because you're actually like locking their spine in place and it's uncomfortable. Only someone who's on like some sort of severe nervous system interrupter, like a drug or something is not going to respond to, and even then they will a lot of the time because, you know, it's hardwired into the base parts of your brain and don't snap your neck. Right. So it's a very effect and it's really hard to actually snap someone's neck in that position. And it's an extremely effective way to control people. And, you know, and on another note, I had a student who went to the RCMP depot and they do, you know, the wrist lock control for pre trying to get the handcuffs on. He's like, I can never do it. They always resist. And I said, because you got to put your knee down in a way that's going to give pain compliance because the wrist lock on its own, I don't know if you found, it's really hard to do on someone who's like clenching their fists, right? And you got to, you got to force it. And I can simply drop my knee in a safe way, obviously not. I I never just like drop a knee on their face, right? You always need active toes. You need to be able to control the pressure. You need to keep your good base. And uh, without that tool, I don't understand how you can really restrain a lot of people without it turning on to a full-on grappling match, which we don't want as a police officer because now you're not actually necessarily in a position where you can, you can back up at any time. Like that's a Kramaga perspective. Always try to be in a position where you can back up at any point, right? If I have to go like side control or, or North South and they can grab onto me while I am in a dominant position, it's still a scramble and they can restrain me long enough and with one hand even just to get out a knife and stab me or their friend to come kick me. Right. So mm-hmm. for me to see that they're taking these very effective tools that are used globally without issues. And all of a sudden in America and Canada, it's like, no, you can't use that. It's like, well, other police forces use it globally without a problem. So maybe it's not the technique that's the issue. Right. And, and then they make these snap, snap decisions. Mm-hmm. That, to give an example of what not to do again locally recently in RCMP office this one's insane I don't know what the guy was thinking some boyfriend called the cops because his girlfriend was having a mental breakdown RCMP showed up this guy I don't know what is wrong with him dragged this girl out by her hair or something and there's a the video of him he just put his boot on her face right in the middle of the hallway in front of everyone obviously I that guy should be fired. It's like, that's not even remotely close, right? Yeah, that's not what we're talking about at yeah, all. Yeah, and, and it was completely inappropriate because the girls, like if, you, I, if you've never dealt with someone in the middle of a mental health crisis, it can look like they're nuts. And if you don't have the background of that person to know, hey, this isn't actually their normal behavior, it can be really difficult to deal with. But, you know, that's the time when physical restraint is actually not necessary your words are but if you don't know what's going on right as an officer you can often feel like you're threatened because you know mentally unstable people even if only temporary can be very difficult to deal with um how do you deal with those kinds of situations other than you know verbally maybe give an example if you're able to because it mental health is like is difficult to deal with when it's (laughs) people you don't know you know yeah i mean it's it's tough to 
you know, police are given a really awesome, and I mean awesome in the sense of big, you know, yeah. awesome responsibility when it comes to what is expected of us. And one of those things involves taking the experience of someone who has a doctorate in psychology and has been practicing psychology for 15 plus years with their own practice, taking that and having to condense it into like a three-day training course and say, okay, go ahead. Now you go out and deal with someone who's experiencing a mental crisis at the peak of their, their, their blowout. This is, this is the worst they've ever been. And now go solve their problem without any real background of what, what they have without any background of what medications they're on. Um, try, don't, don't hurt them and, and safely get them to the hospital for treatment. Yeah. And that, that's such an, a, a monumental task to try and achieve. Yeah. What I find works best for me is just trying to slow things down. If there is no immediate threat, if there's nobody holding a weapon, if nobody is, barricaded inside of a room if if they're just kind of upset but but still responsive your best bet is to just put yourself in a tactically advantageous position so your safety and their safety is accounted for and just try to talk to them but don't try to talk to them as a police officer i try to talk to you as mike you know i i am a person i'm talking to you as a person would and try to try to create a human connection to someone um, where maybe they can better understand the situation of what's going on. They're experiencing something. Maybe they're scared. They've never had this happen before. And just let them know in a in a calm tone of voice instead of ordering someone. You know, just letting them know, hey, you're gonna be okay. We're we're gonna get you some help. But before we do, I, I need to put you in handcuffs for your safety and for my safety. So we can get you into the ambulance and you can go talk to someone who's better trained to deal with you. And I'll ride with you in the ambulance so you feel more comfortable uh, until we get to the hospital. And that's where you're going to be able to get some true help where, where someone can get you back on track. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to just running in headstrong and, and doing a, a double leg takedown and jumping on top of them. It, it's like, yeah, there's a time and place for that if, if someone's in immediate danger of hurting themselves or someone else. But usually what I find is just trying to humanize the person because yeah. their family is usually upset, they're upset, and you have to come in with a cool head. Otherwise, you're just going to make the situation more volatile than it already could be. Yeah. Now, you said, you know... Um they, you know, you're basically trying to cram like PhD level psychology into a lot of situations. Would do you think that police are often expected to do like ten jobs at once, or like is it overwhelming? Yeah, I mean the 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 mantra of policing is you wear different hats. So, you know, am I when I show up at a call, depending on what the call is, I'm either enforcing the law or I'm a mental health counselor or marriage counselor or a, a child therapist or, uh, you know, I might have to be a race car driver to get there. I might have to suddenly become uh, an MMA fighter out of nowhere. I might have to be 
an expert marksman. It, it, it all depends on what's going on. And that, that role can shift at any given moment. You can be at a domestic dispute and you can be in marriage counselor mode and then someone decides they don't like what you're saying and they produce a weapon of some sort and now you have to be, uh, you know, an expert in hand-to-hand combat like that. And you have to be able to switch those hats really quickly. So it's definitely, it's definitely not just a job. It's, it's a craft. It's something that you have to constantly be working at to get better at reading a situation, reading people. It's, you know, it's, it's a sociological phenomena really that's what policing is to me it's it's really understanding the human condition and how people are going to act as a whole and then more specifically in a psychological capacity trying to understand how they might react what you're going to say next or what you're going to do next and then you go from there yeah but it's definitely something that requires extensive practice and extensive training on and yeah for sure now um (laughs) The defund the police movement, obviously, I mean, I'm sure we both agree that on the surface, it's a ridiculous ideology. I think it's hilarious that in Canada, um, which is definitively more left-wing in many ways than America, I actually found, find it hilarious when I'm in New York, side note, that uh, it's such a left-wing state, and yet I'm like, I feel like this is still way more right-wing than, than Canada. Like the no bathrooms thing. I didn't understand the whole bathroom argument in the U.S. until I was in the States, in New York, and I couldn't find a bathroom anywhere. And I'm like, I understand it now. <laughs> like, just a normal person can't even find a bathroom. Um, uh, sorry, I got off on a tangent there. What was I saying before that? Um, you're talking about... What was he saying? Do you hear what he I do that sometimes. I'm like, ah, I get off on it. Um, the oh, defund the police. That's right. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So there's this. Um, forget that nonsense. But there's this idea circulating that perhaps there should be two thing, two like branches per se of for to add another branch of first responders that deals with. Uh, the non-violent situations or not the potentially violent situations like, oh, it's, it is a ment- clearly a mental health crisis. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, that kind of approach? Yeah, I mean, I'm all for the idea of taking calls for service that are inherently not police matters and referring them to specialists who are better trained because believe it or not, we are not the best qualified people to respond to every type of job. Shocker, we are, right. We're, we're the best qualified as of right now, but you know, you show up and you're suddenly <laughs> way in over your head with some type of situation. So I, I'm a hundred percent in favor of supporting more social services towards mental health, towards, poverty towards schools towards investing in children and and making the community more of a cohesive unit with the ultimate goal of creating people who don't want to commit crimes or who aren't placed in a position where they have to commit crimes Mm -hmm. just to get by day to day Mm -hmm. um i'm a hundred percent in favor of that but at the same time it, it shouldn't be defund the police. It should be double down and invest in training for the police. Yeah. Because we, 
we need it. You know, it's every every department around the nation, I could probably argue, tells their officers to seek training outside of. Well, they do it here too in Canada. Um, no. um, yeah. You know, see, take, take jujitsu, take a martial art, take boxing, take crowd, go to some, some shooting classes, you know, basically saying what you're going to learn here is going to check the box. So the department can legally say, well, this officer was trained in this, this, and this. So therefore this should have not happened, but that training could have been two years ago and you're expected to suddenly call on that experience in the midst of a situation, um, whereas someone who more continuously trains multiple times a week, uh, they're going to be more likely to not use force or not use as much force as necessary because they have that been there, done their mindset already instilled within them as a result of their training. Yeah. And I think it would be beneficial to the public as a whole to have better trained officers on the street, specifically focusing on what our bread and butter is, which is crime yeah. and criminal activity. Um, and, and I'm totally in favor of having more qualified individuals responding to people in mental health crisis. And then you can have the police as more of a, a backup option. Yeah. And now they, I'm assuming you've worked with social workers and, 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 and that kind of field, would you say that they get exposed to violent situations a lot or is it just like flip a coin or? It's, you know, I mean, we, yeah, we deal with, we deal with um, childcare workers a lot, like mm. children services workers. And if, if they have to go and try to remove a child from a location mm. and one of the family members starts getting volatile with them, And usually their next step is going to be to call us. Yeah. Then their, their procedures are going to dictate that they don't want them getting involved in physical encounters with people. And rightfully so, they're not trained for it. But yeah. then the, the backdrop is to call the police to come and handle it. Yeah. And if we're going to have unarmed and untrained social workers, and I mean untrained in the sense of like defensive tactics show up to situations that can involve mental instability or, or physical volatility, then, you know, I, I think it would be a disservice to them to not have some sort of background in a defensive art and to give them the legal capacity to actually defend themselves in such a way that, you know, they're encouraged to do what we do now, except they're more trained in the first place as a social worker. So hopefully it shouldn't get to that point. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, I'm happy you say that. Like that's, I'm totally on that. Like I think people have this delusional idea that if you learn martial arts, you're going to be more violent. Not true. Yeah. And it's like a social worker, like, I don't know, you're like the police call time here is like seven to 13 minutes, which so like say a social worker is there and they call, I don't know what it, your call time is in New York. What, what is it by the way? The average, it depends on the kind of call. Yeah. I mean, if it's a gun, serious, <laughs> yeah. If it's serious enough, you'll, you'll have a cop on the scene within a minute or two. Yeah. Yeah, because in New York, I guess the guys are everywhere, so it makes that's that's good, good, good time. Then it's just because, like, let's say your social worker comes in and it's like, no, don't do violence. Yeah, yeah, we're not 
telling you to do violence, obviously you're a social worker, then they get punched in the face and they have to wait if they are even, even able to call for help. And, and I think I agree. They need defensive training, like in the approach here, like we don't ever expect you to ever need to use this or want to use this. This is purely in case someone goes off on you and you have the ability to defend yourself long enough to call for help appropriately. Cause I've heard some horror stories from like psych nurses and social workers, and they are just the most un- ironically, they're the most unequipped people to deal with actual violence in the moment, right. which is they're trained to deal with after the fact, but not while you guys are the opposite during and before. And it's just like, I don't like, why is this piece of the puzzle missing from like, if we want to bring in all these other people, but we still want, don't want to give them the training we're actually doing the same thing over again (laughs) and now we're actually putting the worker in risk not the civilian right so it's like uh frustrating i'm sure for you as it is for me the policy you know policy stuff right so it's uh it's tough and and i don't like because every state i believe is different right so in you in nypd is it like you have big cops and detectives like how does that structure work yeah so there's, <laughs> it's not like that at all um but yeah you'll have the the cops you'll see out on the street are the ones answering the 911 calls but in addition to that we have cops who specifically deal with community concerns they're called neighborhood coordination officers Mm -hmm. they hold meetings every month that the community members can attend and voice their concerns of what's happening in their communities Uh, so that's that's a new approach that that the department has taken on in the last few years and then in addition to that you'll have your detectives who they're going to investigate crimes that can't be solved at the patrol level so If a robbery is committed and we don't find the perp right then and there at the scene at the time of the incident, they're going to take over and they'll investigate and they'll interview witnesses and look for camera footage and stuff like that. Um, And then there's the specialized units. You have emergency service unit, which is similar to like SWAT team. You have uh, canine, you have aviation, you have lots of, I think it's over 200 units within the department. focus on all different kinds of specialties but in your normal typical precinct you're going to have patrol doing 99 percent of the work in the field yeah yeah it's interesting because like uh like i don't know about municipal police here like they kind of all do their own thing but like the rcmp they're all constables which means they do everything you're the first to respond to the scene that's your your scene then they're Mm -hmm. expected to do the detective work do everything including dealing with the victims sometimes. And, and I don't know about you guys, but here, the, if you try to get a hold of a cop, it always goes to voicemail. You don't call them, they call you. And yeah. I think they implemented that strategy because someone did a study or something. I, it was very poorly thought out that the first person to arrive on scene, the victim will emotionally attach themselves to. And they thought that that would be easier to dealing with it. So then they dumped the social work aspect onto the police as well as all the other stuff. But then the victims can never get a hold of the police officers. Right, they're busy doing a hundred other things. Yeah, and it's like, it's a model that I don't agree with. Like, I think the model of more specialty units 
is much better because then you're like taking pressure off and you guys can shift around a little bit as needed. But at the same time, as you say, you're like, you basically, you're a social worker, you're an officer, you're violence, nonviolence, like you got to deal with everything. But if you add all the other stuff on which the RCMP does, I feel like these guys are getting an unfair rap because they have to do everything. And they do 12 on, 12 off, four days usually. So 12 hours on for four days, 12 hours. And then you're so mentally beat down they don't go do training in the, in the, in the other four days and the amount of overtime they do. Cause let's say you get a call at the end of the shift, you're on for another four hours cause you got to deal with it. Right. Yeah. Personally, I think that overtime for first responders should be banned just from a, I know a lot of police unions will be like, you know, uh, but from just an objective mental health and like capacity like if the attention span and learning is 20 minutes, how do you expect an officer to be on point all the time if they're doing eight, 12 or longer shifts? You know, it's to me, it's like it defies actual science. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I can speak from firsthand knowledge um, with all the protests that were recently taking place. The, the NYPD took away our days off. Yeah. And switched us all to 12-hour tours yeah. seven days a week yeah. for crazy. about two weeks. Yeah. Um, so the, the overtime, to say the least, was the you know a lot. I think um, yeah. they did a news article that said it was like over $115 million in overtime spent yeah. just on those two weeks. Yeah. Um, but the the effect that doing 12 hours a day, seven days a week takes on your body, it, it doesn't make you want to get up and, and work out. And you, you want to sleep just long enough so you yeah. can go back to work and then it, you get stuck in this cycle. Oh yeah, I've, I've been there. And I should just sort of clarify that in a specific situation like this, that overtime is, uh, is sometimes necessary. Like, but so you're saying normally you do like eight hour shifts? Yeah, normally we work eight and a half hours, five right. days a week, which we are doing again, thankfully. Yeah. And then our days off rotate from two days off to three days off. And then the following week is two and then three. So yeah. it's constantly rotating. Your days off are always rotating. Um, and it's, it's not terrible. You know, I know a lot of officers would be in favor of 10 or 12 hour tours. Yeah. You would work either four days a week or three days a week, depending. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that would give you more time with your family, more time away from work where you can focus on, again, being the better version of yourself. So when you're at work, yeah. you're as fresh as you can be. Um, but, you know, overtime is unavoidable in police yeah. work sometimes. A lot yeah, of it can be uh, um, accounted for, but sometimes it's just unavoidable. Yeah. But I agree with your, what you're saying where, you know, for us, we have every major detail and parade, COVID-19 aside, if you have a regular year, you have St. Patty's Day, Thanksgiving, you have the whole Christmas season, the summer, 4th of July, you have all these details and parade, yeah. and who has to work those? It's going to be cops who have to yeah. work those. Um, yeah, I mean, overtime is fine once in a while. I just think making it the norm is is not what I like to see. Like I know contention like is, well, we don't get paid enough. Now, American police, you guys get paid shit from what I know uh, compared <laughs> to like can Canadian policing, I believe is some of the highest paid in the world. Like RCMP, they make 
seventy to a hundred thousand dollars a year plus overtime. Um, but they're always complaining they don't have money, partially because a lot of them are bad with money in the first place. So we need to put that in. But you know, one thing I think is that first responders shouldn't be paid, taxed on payroll, right? Because you guys are doing a service to the public. Why are you guys getting taxed? If especially you guys in America don't get paid as well as you probably should. It's like, how do we fix the problem of making sure you guys are adequately compensated um, without putting too much more burden on the taxpayers. And I'm like, well, don't tax first responders on their payroll. And then they get more money and, you know, everyone's a little happier that way. Cause a lot of cops like to do overtime for that more money, you know, but it's like, that's just my spitballing ideas. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. If, if you want to be the agent for change for us, please yeah. by all means, come down here. And I'm a terrible mediator. I usually piss people off. <laughs> Like I'm being pretty good to right now. Um, just cause you know what you do for a living, I'm keeping it. If, I don't know if you listen to some of my old podcasts, which I haven't done in a while, but I'll like, I'll go off on whatever thing. So I'm a terrible media, but thank you. But it's certainly, I think that's what needs to happen is ideas that are practical and solve multiple problems at once are what needs to happen. Like more training will solve tons of problems. My, my idea about don't tax the payroll on first responders. Well, that'll get you guys more money. And while yes, it'll reduce government uh, uh, revenue a little bit, it's an insignificant amount to the amount that they would have to pay out giving massive raises across the board. You know, although I do think you guys should make a little bit more money than you do in the States, but it's... Uh, I that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Now I do notice, is that a significant other walking around in the background? Yeah, that was yeah. Yeah. What? What is? Uh, I mean, you can speak for her or not. It's wh- whatever you guys want. Like, what does she think about you being uh, a police officer? Well, you know, I'm I'm in a very fortunate position to be with someone who is understanding of what I do for a living and who supports me through it. And and despite the stresses and the uh, limitations it can put on us as a as a couple. Um, she understands my passion for it, and she understands why I do it, and you know my desire to really try to actually help people. And you know, at times it can be rough when you see things in the news. This has been a particularly turbulent time yeah. for policing in general. But you know, it's it's the police. It, it's not just you as the cop who takes the job it's your entire immediate family it's your wife or your husband or your 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 aunt or your uncle your mom your dad they have to take the job with you um, and they have to go through all the things that you go through they they have to go through birthday parties and anniversaries without you and Christmases, holidays without you, and you know it's a sacrifice on all fronts. Yeah. In the name of of preservation of of life and keeping the peace in your yeah. community, and uh, you know, so I, I'm very fortunate, and I don't take anything she does for granted. You know, she sacrifices so much for for me, so I can do what I do every day. 
Um, but you know, it's stressful. And I, I don't think any police spouse out there would say otherwise. Yeah. So. Like, uh, my girlfriend, we were discussing a little while, maybe I should get into policing. Obviously on paper, I'm qualified though. I think there's a few things that would disqualify me. So it's like, uh, I think I'd be a great cop. But then I was telling her like, you know, they have a really high divorce rate. <laughs> and she's like, Oh, I didn't know that. It's like, don't be a cop. <laughs> it's a hard job for everyone involved for sure. Um, so that's lucky for you that uh, you have that support because I know a lot of people, they, they don't necessarily have it. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to just what what is your life without the shield, without the badge? Yeah. What, what is your interests? What are your hobbies? What do you like to do? Who are you as a person? Not as a cop, but who are you as you? And, yeah. and, and it's important to have healthy separations from the job so you can focus on your relationships and your hobbies and you know whatever else you want to do so for me it's it's always been fitness and krav maga that's always been a huge part of my life i've always enjoyed training it just so happens that those skills translate into what i do for a living but that's not the reason that i train yeah, uh, you know, I train because I actually enjoy it, and it's a good outlet for for stress. Yeah. Um, so, in addition to that, focusing on my relationship and you know, giving her my time as opposed to hanging out with the boys from work yeah. on my day off or whatever, you know, like I'm going to see you guys on Monday. Like we can. Yeah. We can some healthy separation there so I can focus on my relationships and my hobbies and uh, I think that's what a lot of newer younger officers particularly millennials are looking for in the yeah. job and looking to slog away 80 hours of overtime a month and you know just, yeah no they're, they're looking to have like a healthy work-life balance they yeah. want to enjoy their life as much as their career yeah, I think that's uh, important advice. Like in mental health, for example, the, a common thing that people do is they take their illness, whether it be depression, anxiety. And I, I saw this in the psych field. It drives me nuts. It's a lot of people go into psychology, have issues, you know, whether you like that word or not. There are issues that need to be worked out. And they are taught in the degree, here's how you deal with it. And one of the things you're taught is that you cannot make your identity the disorder or disease or whatever illness. You can't be like, hi, I'm John. I have depression. Like you cannot make that your identity. So I think that transfers over to policing, right? If you make your whole identity is your job and it's a job that's highly stressful, it, it's going to be really difficult to disconnect and, and diffuse. And it's the same thing with mental illness, right? If your whole life is a cop, then you can't separate from it when things are hard. Same for the mental illness. Like, oh, if you're always saying you have depression and you're always talking about it and it's your identity, it's going to be almost impossible to overcome it because it's you've made it exclusively who you are. You know, so I think that's a really healthy approach that you need to have that work-life balance. Your identity can't be just the officer. And I do think there's a lot of officers who make it their identity. And that's where that extreme protectionism over the bad apples, if they, you want to call them that, right? Because I know it happens for sure. There's stories all over the place in Canada too, right? I really, I feel bad for Americans 
in the sense that everyone's shitting on America like it's the only place racism exists. I'm like, have you been to fucking Europe? They're so racist over there. Like, unbelievable. I was talking to one of my German students. She's like, yeah, 100%. And, and they'll sit here and mock America and say, oh, you guys are so racist. I'm like, yeah, but racism is everywhere. And this, this I'm going to get in trouble for. You won't. Don't worry. Is So I grew up in Metro Vancouver, and it's about 80%, and I'm not joking, 80% Asian in all of Metro Vancouver. That's mostly Chinese, but a lot of Japanese, Korean, and a lot of Indians, right? There's a lot of Sikhs here which actually makes white people the minority. But the narrative is that white people are not the minority and we're the racist one. Now, I'm obviously Jewish. I don't walk around with uh, all the garb. I'm not Hasidic, so people won't know that I'm Jewish. But they know I'm white. And guess what? You know how much racism I've gotten over the years from Chinese people, from Indians, from everyone, and this ideology that it's just one group you know, that's racist is it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you've experienced all levels of that going on because New York is such a, is such a mixed, a mixed bag. And, and, and uh, I think that if more people can detach themselves from whatever their job is, their issues, we can have more honest, honest uh, conversations. Cause I feel like a lot of people attacking the police may in many cases be suffering from mental illness themselves and they can't detach because they jump on these uh, social media movements and it becomes their identity and then it goes too far and they're like, they can't, you know, separate it. And I think it's a really, really important skill to who am I in the absence of other things, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Yeah. So we've been, it's been about two hours and, uh, probably you've probably had enough or if you're not we can keep going but you know is there anything specifically you wanted to talk about that we haven't discussed yet no i mean i i think you know as as 2020 is raging on like a freight train um i think what we're gonna see is the call for a lot of police-related reforms. And I think for the first time in the history of most police departments, you're seeing the leaders are actually, you know, wide-eyed and their ears are open. And they're they're willing to listen to the concerns that are being brought up because policing is not a perfect art. It's not an exact science. It's going to change as the times change as it always has and as it always will continue to change. Um, so I think we're, we're at the precipice of a next major shift in how we approach policing. And, um, you know, it's the, the, the department brass is listening. The frontline officers are listening. We, we are willing to do things differently, but it has to be done within reason because it has to be taken into account that again, we are human beings and our lives are not as expendable. You know, we, we aren't pigs for slaughter. We yeah. don't, the, the common line is, well, they know what they signed up. For. Well, I didn't sign up to get shot. I didn't get signed up to, to get stabbed. Yeah. Uh, you know, I signed up to try and serve my community and be a part of something bigger than myself, which is, which is a very intrinsically motivated reason. And I think the reason a lot of people do sign up, um, but, you know, a, a 
component of that is training on all fronts. I think getting our civilian population involved in training in you know civilian police academies or putting them through a, a force simulator machine or, or something like that to give people a perspective of what we have to deal with on a daily basis. I think that really has a lot of eye-opening moments for people. And then you can have a conductive, I'm sorry, a productive dialogue between community and police and really work to strengthen those bonds and strengthen those relationships with, again, the ultimate goal of making people safer in their own neighborhoods and in their communities. Yeah. So that's, that's probably probably a good place to end it. Um, you have a blog. What is it? Yeah, so my blog is called Krav Maga Mindset. It's on WordPress. You can look it up. Um, it's in addition to yours. It's probably one of the few Krav Maga specific blogs that are on WordPress. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, your your blog is actually one of the inspirations for my blog. I remember as I was getting ready to start it, and I'm looking up other Krav Maga blogs to kind of see what other people were doing. And I saw yours and I was, I felt almost immediately defeated. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> this is exactly what I wanted to do, but he's already doing it. So what am I supposed to do? You're you know? just right. That's all you do. That's, that's how you do it. Like I'm believe it or not. And this is surprising to a lot of people. If you'd asked me in high school, would you be putting yourself out there talking in front of people teach? I'd be like, no, cause I used to have terrifying like I can't get up and talk in front of people. And now I'm like, whatever, literally from just teaching uh, martial arts. So it's, you literally just do it. I think the greatest slogan ever from one of the crappiest companies ever is just do it. It just really is the best advice in most cases. Right. And you'll either be good at it or you're not. And, you know, I was listening to a colleague's podcast and they were just saying like, they've been doing their YouTube channel for a while. Shout out to, uh, RV, what is it? RV, JJ, Roy, Rory Van Vliet from Island Top Team. And he was just saying like, man, like I'd made no money off of this for a year. It's like, you gotta like it. If you, if you hate it and you're just doing it for the money, like you're not going to have a good time. But if you just really just, you want to write then you just write. If you want to blog, you blog. If you want to uh, podcast, you just do it. And yeah. eventually it'll, like, I mean, you go, my, I don't know what I am dyslexic, something, but my grammar and spelling is not the best. It's gotten much better over the years. And, you know, I, if I was self-conscious about that, I would never have put it out there. Uh, I just, uh, anyone who's being a grammar Nazi, I just tell them to fuck off, like grow up, you know, there's ESL people out there, all sorts of stuff. Like you can't be, listen to what the message is. You're just being a dick. If you're like, Oh, the grammar. Luckily I have a good editor now. Cause I do know a lot of people are picky about that, but, if I can just put it out there with crappy spelling and grammar and no real writing skills, anyone can, right? And you just do it and you get it out there. And that the yeah. more people who are having meaningful discussions and conversations and not on Reddit, because <laughs> that place is a bit of a mess, um, you, the more like dialogue, like the more we can progress. Because if we're only hearing the voices of, uh, the mainstream media who are so out of line nowadays, I don't know how anyone can think they aren't. Uh, we're not going to be having meaningful conversations and nothing's going to get fixed. So, I mean, good for you for, for putting your voice out there. And I'm, I'm glad that mine could have uh, inspired you. 
I'm just yeah, you know, yeah. That's what it I, is, you know? I was always taught uh, give back to martial arts, but martial arts is given to you. And yeah. this blog is kind of my personal way of doing that. I don't do it as often as I like. Yeah, there's something um, to do with that. Don't worry. When I can, I do. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Krav Maga Mindset. Yeah. Um, I try to post on there from time to time, but. Yeah, it's just it's good to be speaking with someone who's who's like minded and who's trying to just keep people safe and preach the gospel of self defense. Yeah. And you know, just for reasons bigger than ourselves. Yeah. We wanna just keep people safe and healthy. For sure. I think I think that's what everyone should be doing and knock it off. Well, I love politics, anyone who knows me, knock off the bullshit so that we can actually get to the point of everyone being happy, healthy and safe. Uh so any last words? Um, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank yeah, you for absolutely. listening to me talk for two hours. And yeah. uh, I look forward to working with you in the future. Sure. Yeah, thanks for reaching out, of course. I'm just going to uh, close it and then uh, close the recording and then I'll just uh, chat for a sec. Yep. So thanks for listening. Have a great day. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions.